Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. Today's message is brought to us by Susan Redek, who is the equipping pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church and an ordained deacon in the Anglican Church in North America. Well, good evening, Church of the Beloved. I bring you greetings from Emmanuel Anglican Church, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, it's definitely a humbling task to preach to a congregation I'm personally unfamiliar with, but I'm encouraged by the reality that we share in common the same Good Shepherd. Um, and I trust that Jesus will meet each one of us through his word this evening. I also know, as I've been thinking about the things that we share in common, I know that we share in common many of the losses and strains and sorrows of the last couple of years. As we roll on into the month of February shortly, we're nearing that second anniversary of that first shocking wave of COVID. It was followed by intensified and exacerbated political decision, divisions, followed by new and painful illustrations of old and painful realities of racism. As individuals, as a nation, as a global community, our lives have been thoroughly shaken up in recent years, haven't they? Our church lives have been shaken up also. Your church family, like mine, probably looks different than it did a few years ago. I've had conversations with people who, after their habit of in-person church attendance was broken by COVID, realized that they no longer held faith in Jesus. And in our church body, the next layer out from our local congregation at Emmanuel, there's been news of abuse and rumors of scandal, shaking trust. Some folks have moved on from our local body and some have moved outside of the church altogether. None of this is really new, of course. Um, I remember it was about 15 years ago, my family and I were in a different church denomination we were deeply connected to it, deeply loved it. Um, that church underwent what I call the trauma and drama years. Virtually every church I know has undergone trauma and drama years. Um, doesn't make it less shocking or less distressing. And I vividly remember that profound sense of unease that comes from living through a season of great loss in the church without the benefit of a pastor's care. Where can we find security in a world like this? Ever since our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, made that fatal choice to doubt the goodness of God and then to break faith with him, when they moved out from under his protective care, every human being in the world has had to navigate life within a context of loss. But that original loss, that loss of intimate fellowship with God, of innocent joy in his presence, that was the first and greatest loss. And all the other losses that we experience flow from that. The only security that exists in heaven or on earth is union with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this world is precious, 
but it's temporary. This world was created very good, but it's treacherous to navigate now. Our true and permanent home is with God. In the chapter that comes right before today's text in Hebrew, the author says that those who put their faith in God acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They were seeking a homeland, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Whether you call it heaven, or the city of God, or the throne room of God, or the coming kingdom of God, our home and all our security lies in the heart of God. We tend to think of heaven as a different location than where we live, and it's a future destination. And that's kind of true, but it's also true that God's kingdom exists wherever God's will is done. We can think of that part of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's will were done on earth as perfectly as it is done in heaven, there would be no difference in that way between heaven and earth. In other words, it's not heaven per se that's unshakable, so much as it is that life with God himself is in its essence unshakable. There's no question that on this earth, until we pass through a final shaking, that is that final judgment, we will continue to suffer loss. But there's a world of difference in suffering loss alone and in suffering loss while abiding in the company, in the heart of the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me give an example. Full disclosure, I've used this illustration in a sermon before, um, but I think it speaks eloquently to this specific dynamic. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score, um, and that examines how people hear from trauma and recover from loss. And in this book, the author, Bessel van der Kolk, describes an event that happened to a five-year-old boy named Noam, and that was the son of the friend of his. On September 11th, 2001, Noam and his fellow first grade classmates witnessed an airplane smash into the World Trade Center less than 1,500 feet from their classroom. This was just moments after Noam's dad had dropped him off, and with the help of his teachers, Noam was quickly able to find his father, grab his dad's hand, and run out into the streets with him. Noam and his dad literally ran for their lives, and they arrived safely at home. So just about a week later, Vanderkolk, the author of this book, visited Noam's family, and he saw a picture that Noam had drawn. He'd drawn the picture the very next day, on September 12th. And here's how the author describes the picture. The drawing depicted what Noam had seen the day before. An airplane slamming into the tower, a ball of fire, firefighters, and people jumping from the tower's windows. At the bottom of the picture, he had drawn something else, a big black circle at the foot of the building. I asked him what it was. A trampoline, Noam said, so that the next time when people have to jump, they will be safe. 
Van der Kolk was astonished at how quickly Nome was able not only to start processing this unthinkable tragedy, but how quickly he was able to begin using his imagination on behalf of helping others. Van der Kolk goes on to explain that the ability to retreat from danger and go to a safe place to run home is critical for healing. But another huge factor in Noam's resilience was the presence of his father. Noam's world was literally shaken to pieces over his head in a dramatic and visceral way that most of us will never experience. Noam lived, as we do, in an unstable world. But he also lived as the beloved son of a father capable of bringing him safely home. And closeness to the father in an unstable world makes all the difference to us as well. So an immediate question for us is not how can we avoid loss, but how can we come close to God? After having broken fellowship with God, how can we now approach him and draw close to him? The whole book of Hebrews grapples with this question. All throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is describing what type of relationship with God was possible before Jesus became incarnate as a man, suffered death, and was raised from the dead, and contrasting that with what is possible afterwards, after Jesus came in the flesh to be with us. In chapter 12 specifically, the writer describes a vivid picture of life with God before Jesus took on human flesh. This is starting at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is kind of alarming. <laughs> the author's hearkening back to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And you might remember how after God rescued and freed the Israelites from slavery and oppression in Egypt, he delivered the law and he delivered the Ten Commandments specifically to Moses while they were in the wilderness. And the giving of the law was an expression of God's desire to be in relationship with his people, the Israelites. The laws kind of outlined how to live in a covenant bond that God wanted to have with his beloved people. On Mount Sinai, God drew near to humankind and covenanted with his beloved people. The people promised to keep the law of God, and God promised to provide them with every sort of security imaginable, abundant water and fruitful harvest, safety from wild animals, protection from enemies. Better still, God said, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people." It's ironic then that the, the picture that the writer paints of God's presence is such a stark and fearsome one. That experience at Sinai was terrifying to the people. There was blazing fire, 
but also gloom and darkness and a clash of trumpets in the ears, a voice speaking unbearable words. Everyone who saw and heard was completely overwhelmed. All the senses were overwhelmed and kind of undone by it. The holiness of our loving God was so foreign to human ears that the hearers begged for him to stop. The weight of his glory was so heavy that they feared it would crush them. The very stability of the presence of God made the mountain quake and the people tremble. The nearer the lover of our souls came, the more dread we felt in his presence. The law of the Lord given at Sinai was pure and good and precious, and it had the power to reveal the love of God for his people, but the law alone could not make us able to dwell with him. If we were capable of keeping his perfect law, the kingdom of God could have come in its fullness way back then. But the law wasn't sufficient, and we were not sufficient. What the law could do, however, was point ahead toward better things to come. It pointed ahead to the word incarnate, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. I know my high school Sunday school class called it the Faith Hall of Fame. Um, And it's a list of men and women who lived before Jesus came. They couldn't keep the law. They couldn't stand in the presence of God. But they lived in faith that God would make a way for us to come close to him. Hebrews 11.13 says, These, all these men and women, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. The saints of old were given grace to see God by faith and to greet him from a far distance. But that distance, that unbridgeable gap, was not just unbearable for us, kept far away from God. It was intolerable for God. It was not his will that his beloved people would continue generation after generation to suffer the losses of life at a distance from him. So in Christ, God made a way that he could come even closer to us and we might draw closer to him. Looking in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Life under the law meant living with loss and drawing near to God only in the context of earthquakes in this howling wilderness. But living in the life of Christ means feasting at table with the Lord in the company of the beloved. This then is a picture of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A place to feast eternally in the life-giving presence of God himself, in the holy community of angels 
and in the community of faith, along with our brothers and sisters. Now, there's a whole lot packed into these few verses, a whole hodgepodge of images that describe different aspects of what drawing near to God looks like in the light of Jesus, and we don't have time to unpack most of it. We're going to look at a couple of these. Verse 23 talks about coming to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, normally, I don't associate having dinner with a judge, which is kind of part of what this picture does. Dinner with a judge, I don't associate that with a secure and homey feeling. (laughs) Most of my connotations of God as judge of all feel a little negative. Who likes to be judged? The judgment of God is something that we all fear, but I'd argue that it's something that we all need. And in some sense, it's something that we long for. Maybe you've encountered this slogan in a meme or on a bumper sticker somewhere. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. They're spelled different ways. N-O, justice, N-O, peace. K-N-O-W, justice, K-N-O-W, peace. Even in the world at large, there's an acknowledged connection between justice and peace. A judge, then, is actually a very powerful, positive symbol. A judge is the one qualified and capable of executing justice and thereby establishing peace. Earthly judges, at their very best, at their very, very best, can only do this partially, clumsily, approximately. But God can and will examine every crime, every injustice, every sin, and set it all exquisitely right in its perfect completion. All the shaking that we suffer in our lives, the losses, the instability, the uncertainty, the unease that haunt us our whole lives, all of that stems directly or indirectly from the fact that we are so far out of alignment with the God of perfect peace and justice and holiness. The day of judgment is the day that finally all the broken, sharp, painful shards and pieces of this life will be shaken out completely. And everything that's left will at once be restored, renewed, recreated in perfect wholeness and holiness. In the words of the psalmist, on this day, mercy and truth will meet together. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. The kingdom of God exists wherever and wherever Jesus Christ is worshipped and obeyed. So it begins imperfectly, but it does begin here and now. The reign of Jesus as King of heaven and earth has already begun. It will not be present in its fullness until that final shaking, that final judgment. So let's jump to verse 
26 for a moment. He, that is God, has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So imagine that you do indeed first meet that judge in a courtroom where you were guilty of many crimes. But then when you meet him again at a dinner party in the evening that same day, this is after that judge has declared your innocence. Your very sensible fear of him would, you'd have a very different set of emotions in his presence after his declaration that you're innocent. And in this case, your judge not only granted you an undeserved pardon, he somehow truly made you clean, perfected you by his own great personal sacrifice, and befriended you in such a way that you are actually and literally no longer a criminal, but one of the righteous made perfect. This is a snapshot of that future kingdom, perfect in peace, perfect in love, perfect in righteousness. But, and this is important, we don't have to wait to pass through that final judgment before we begin living close to God in his kingdom, washed in the righteousness of Jesus. The kingdom of God is not just something to think about and wait for while we live in a world of loss. The reign of God in Christ has begun now. Verse 22 says, you have come, as in you have already come to Mount Zion. Verse 28 exhorts us to gratitude for a kingdom we are now receiving. Christ has already won for us an eternal, unshakable kingdom because the Lord God draws near to us in the here and now. Until we move past that final shaking, we continue to suffer loss. But because Jesus Christ has lived and died for us, we can already begin to enjoy the essential reality of the unshakable kingdom, intimacy with God. There is no loss we have to suffer apart from him. There's no loss that can threaten to dislodge our life with Jesus. This has been won for us absolutely and irrevocably through the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How do we go about receiving this unshakable kingdom? In our lives in the here and now, where we continue to sustain losses common to humanity, what does it mean to live into that eternal kingdom now? If the unshakable kingdom is less about heaven as a future destination and more about making our home in God, I think the answer presents itself in our text. Um, in verse 28, we, we read, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In the new covenant, that covenant relationship established through the body and blood of Jesus, God himself gave his whole self to us, holding nothing back. For us to offer God acceptable worship 
is to give our whole selves back to him in gratitude, holding nothing back. Not our bodies, not our minds, not our souls. But that gratitude piece is really key. In my own church tradition, one of the ways we talk about communion or the Lord's Supper is by using the word Eucharist. And this is just a Greek word that means thanksgiving. But the meaning of Eucharist, of that great thanksgiving, is not limited to the Lord's Supper. It's actually a way of acknowledging that the only proper response to the great gifts of God, this gift of the unshakable kingdom, is to receive God's gifts with joy and thanksgiving and to allow our whole lives to express that thanksgiving to him. We worship him by receiving him with gratitude in a way that shapes our whole lives. Now, we can't match the purity and the wholeness with which God offered himself to us. But we don't have to. We actually covenant with him that we will give ourselves to him, including our broken, ugly parts, the parts of us that have caused and are causing loss to other people, the parts of us that contribute directly to the corruption, scandal, abuse, and instability of the world. He gives us his perfect, whole, unshakable love, and we just entrust ourselves to him in faith that he will not let us go until he carries us through that final judgment, that final perfection, and we get, down, get to sit down and feast with him. It's not then the quality of our Thanksgiving offering that allows us to make our home in God. The only thing that we need to do is respond to him in faith and lean into that with all aspects of our lives. Elsewhere in this passage and definitely throughout all of scripture, we hear bits and pieces of what Eucharistic Thanksgiving life looks like. And it, it looks like work. We are allowed to participate in the sanctifying work that Jesus does in us. We can strive for peace. We strive for holiness. We uproot bitterness. We abstain from sexual immorality. None of these things, none of these works secures the kingdom for us. Only Jesus can do that. He did it, and he hands the kingdom over to us gratis, for free, for sheer love's sake. But all of these works of righteousness are marks of people who are actively receiving God's unshakable kingdom. Not marks of people trying to buy their way in, but marks of those who are receiving in gratitude the kingdom that's being given to us. There's actually a little analogy about this built right into our text. Up in verse 15 we read, See to it that no one is unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And you might remember Esau from the Old Testament. He was the older twin brother to Jacob, who is the father to the 12 tribes that became the Hebrew people. Because Esau was the older brother, that birthright was his. That meant from the moment he was born, he was destined to inherit his parents' estate. The whole property and all the wealth of the household was set aside to come to him on his father's death. Esau did not have to do a thing 
to earn it. It was his absolutely just because of his unique relationship to his father. Our father's kingdom is our birthright. We are the assembly of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven. That's mentioned in verse 23. That's what that's talking about. That's what the author means by firstborn. It is our father's will to give us the kingdom, and we don't have to do a thing in order to receive it. However, we can choose to refuse it. The unholiness of Esau that this text warns us against is the act of deliberately throwing away intimacy with God that Christ purchased for us at great cost. Scripture speaks about Esau despising that birthright. Esau deliberately threw over his birthright, which by analogy represents both his relationship to his father and his lasting security, and he grasped instead for the comfort of a temporary passing bit of earthly security, in his case represented by a single bowl of stew. Unwilling to welcome Jesus from afar, he chose to let go of God's coming kingdom and attach himself instead to the passing things of this earth, which will be consumed by fire in the final shaking. The exhortation from the book of Hebrews is that we relinquish our grasping for control in these lives that we're passing through and attach ourselves to Jesus to receive from him the unshakable kingdom. This troubled world is shaking, but the kingdom of God is already breaking through. Let us, in joyful response, live lives consistent with the holy God who has made his home with us. In worship and obedience, let us draw near to Jesus, cling to Jesus, cleave faithfully to Jesus who has already secured for us the unshakable kingdom which we are even now receiving. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.